a scribe, uh, a teacher of the law, comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's the big kahuna? What's the one, like the most important thing that I should be doing? Jesus responds to the man and he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You see, uh, in our culture, in our day and age, love is, is kind of described in this passive category, right? We fall into love. We don't jump into it. Um, it, it's really described in, in music and in songs as something that happens to us. But if that's true, then why would Jesus command us to love? If it's something that simply happens to us, we have no control over it, then why would we be commanded to love with our heart and with our soul and with our mind and with our strength? How can you be expected to accomplish something, to do something that we have no control over? Well, Jared, uh, two weeks ago, talked about loving God with our heart and how the heart is really the center of who we are. It's the, the very uh, most important part of us. And he brought up this idea, uh, and he quoted modern-day philosopher uh, Selena Gomez, who puts it so eloquently that the heart wants what it wants, baby. There's this idea that the mind and the heart are against each other, they're at odds. That uh, you love what you love and the mind has no say in it. Um, and if, if anything, the mind is against what the heart is for. That, that these two things are uh, at odds with one another. And the truth is, I'm, go I'm gonna argue this, that the heart and the mind aren't opposed to one another. In fact, the mind is the pathway to the heart. That loving God with our mind, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is more than just knowledge about God. But it's, it's certainly not less than that. Um, because I believe that you cannot love what you don't know. Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. I love my wife. She's amazing. Um, but let's say that I come to you and I say, Man, I love my wife. I love her blonde hair and that she's 5'1 and um, that she hates shopping at Target. I, oh, her British accent, I love, you know, that's just amazing. Um, and, you know, I think for our anniversary, I might get her a table sock. She, she just loves working with power tools. If you know my wife, what you would say to me is, you're nuts. None of those things are true about my wife, right? My, my wife is a brunette. She's not 5'1". She loves shopping at Target. Uh, she, she doesn't use power tools very often. And, and so if I were to say, man, I love my wife, and here are some of the things I love about her, you would say, well, you don't even know your wife. You, what really, you love a figment of your imagination. That's not who your wife is. And I think the truth is that when we don't love God with our mind, and we don't think rightly about who he is as he's revealed to us in the Bible, then what we end up doing is loving a figment of our imaginations with our heart and our soul and our strength. And so in order to love with our mind, we need to know who we're loving. You can't love 
what you don't know. So in order to get to know someone, you would have to then study that person, right? And this might sound a little strange, but um, when you are first entering into a relationship, whether it be a friendship or a romantic relationship, let's say, a lot of what you're doing at the beginning of a relationship is you are studying that person. And not in a creepy, like, I'm stalking you on Facebook type of way, but more of a, I, I want to know about you. Tell me the stories of, of what it was like growing up. Tell me about the things that you like and dislike. And, and how do you like to spend your, your learning about this person? You're spending your time, you're studying them. That's what we ought to do, right? And so uh, that same thing applies to our relationship with the Lord. You know, we're, we're kind of afraid of this term theology. We don't want to be a, a too theological. But the truth is we ought to be theological. We ought to study God because we love God, right? If we are claiming that we love God, we, we ought to study him in the same way that we ought to study a spouse or a significant other. We ought to study God. I mean, this is true for, for spouses as well. It's easy to become complacent. It's easy to get to a point where you think, well, I know enough. You know, I don't need to study my wife anymore. We've been together for 10 years, and I know enough about her. I don't really need to learn anything else. But the truth is, we ought to be constant students of our spouses. And in the same way, we ought to be students of the Lord. And we ought to, to care about the truth about who he is. And so we need to, to know something. We need to study it. And then, this is an important one, I think we need to then put it into practice. Um, you know, a lot of people are getting home gyms right now because gyms are closed and they might not be the safest place uh, to be right now. But if I were to tell you, you know, I, I just spent $2,000 on gym equipment. I didn't. Um, but, you know, I know a lot of people are, are buying Pelotons and things like that. But if I were to tell you, you know, I, I bought a Peloton and all this other gym equipment, and I started doing all this research about dieting and exercise, and I signed up for all these coaches and stuff, and gosh, I still have not lost any weight. And you would, be, you would probably ask, hopefully, so what are you doing then? What's, what's your plan? And if I responded and said, well, I haven't done anything, but I, I, I've got all the stuff, and, and I've, I've accumulated the knowledge, and I know what I'm supposed to do, you would say, well, that's not going to help you. You actually have to put it into practice. This is why James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is why Luke says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And here's what I think. I think there's this reciprocal effect that happens when we hear, when we learn the word of God and we do it. Um, I had a, a roommate named Clint a few years back and Clint was a great roommate, and uh, we would watch TV often together. And sometimes I would come out into the living room, and I would see that he was watching fishing shows on TV. Um, and I would sit down, and I would give it my best go. And I got to tell you, I think watching fishing shows is probably the most boring thing. In the, I mean, it is watching paint dry for me. I just don't, I, how are we going to watch a guy sit in a boat and fish for an hour? This is just painful, Clint. And Clint loved those shows. And I realized something is, is that Clint, he was a fisherman. He loved fishing. I never really go fish. 
And so when he's watching those shows, he's watching them with different eyes. He's, he's putting it into practice, the things that he's learning, the things that uh, he's absorbing in these shows. And when I'm watching it, there's no purpose for me in it. And I think that for us, this is maybe the reason that some of us don't really read our Bible, that we don't spend any time in scriptures because we don't put it into practice. And so in order to fall in love with the, the, the word of God and, and the study of it, I think we need to be able to put into practice what it's calling us to. What you fill your mind with overflows into the rest of the parts of you. It, your mind then overflows into your heart and into your soul and into your strength, your will. The mind is what throws fuel on the fire of our love for God. The, the mind of a believer is wildly important. That's why scripture talks about it like a battleground. That's why 2 Corinthians says that there's a war fought not in our flesh, but in our thoughts. And, and it says to take every thought captive and to make them obedient to Christ, which for a lot of us, I think, our thoughts take us captive, not the other way around. Romans 12, that's why it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Jesus. The, the mind is such an important territory. And that's why we need to learn to fight for it. What does it mean to battle for our minds? Well, we're going to take a look at the life of Daniel. Then the king, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. See, King Nebuchadnezzar is, is brilliant. When the Babylonians invaded this foreign nation, he knew that the people there would not just obey him out of brute force, that they, they couldn't get him to fall in line just out of physical force. They needed something better. And so they came up with this idea to get the best and the brightest young men, the, the influencers of the time maybe, right? The popular, good-looking kids. And, and they took them from their family and they, and they brought them into the Babylonian empire. And his goal was this, to slowly turn these guys into puppets for Babylon. His goal was to capture their minds and use them. And so I think that... In this story, there's a lot for us to learn of, of how to fight a battle for our mind. The first thing I see in this story is that isolation is dangerous. Isolation is dangerous. 
You see, that's, this is really the first thing that King Nebuchadnezzar does, right? He isolates Daniel from the people of God. He removes him from community. And I think that that's what our enemy wants to do to us in the battle for our mind. You see, we're um, in a quarantine right now. And so a lot of us are probably feeling isolated. I mean, we are physically isolated from one another. But with that comes usually a, a, a mental isolation and an emotional isolation. And I think back to the people that I've known that have walked away from their faith, which is heartbreaking to see. But usually the first sign of that happening is that they begin to pull away from community. They begin to disconnect. They begin to isolate um, from God's community, from other people, other believers. And I think it's a dangerous thing to do. And I think not only do we need to be in community, but we need to be willing to, to share our lives. We need to be willing to share our struggles, share our sin. We, when you share those things and they're brought into the light, then the darkness no longer has power over it. When you are alone, you become a target. You become vulnerable and not in a good way. So that's the first thing I noticed, that isolation is dangerous. Secondly, we need to remember our identity. See, literally, they go ahead and try to change Daniel's name and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Daniel, whose name means my judge is Elohim. My judge is God. They change his name to Belteshazzar, Bel protect the king, right? Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh, who is gracious, they change his name to Shadrach, which means commander of the moon god. You know, they're, they're literally trying to change their identities to get them to believe something about themselves that's not true. And I think what's huge is that this book of the Bible is called Daniel, not Belteshazzar, right? Daniel knows his identity and where it's found. I think so often we are searching for identity and so many other things. You know, my identity does not come from my successes. My identity does not come from my failures. My identity doesn't come from what other people think about me. It doesn't come from what I think about me. My identity comes from what God has done for me and what God says about me. And when we believe that and we hold on to those things, we can filter the, the thoughts that come into our mind through those truths. And when we do that, we remember our identity and we fight for the battlefield of our mind. Thirdly, uh, we need to be careful what we are eating. What are we feeding our minds? So literally, King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to give uh, Daniel this food. And Daniel has resolved not to defile himself with this food. This is food that God has asked the Israelites not to eat. And so Daniel chooses not to partake in it. And I think for us, what are we feeding our minds? And is it, is it junk? Is it stuff that's going to defile us? I remember talking to a group of high schoolers a while back, uh, and I had them all get out their phones and take a look at their screen time. How much, how much time are we on our phones every day even? What are we spending our time doing? 
I remember a lot of this, the, the high schoolers had four, five, six. One girl had seven to eight hours a day on social media. And I thought, this is heartbreaking that most of our day is spent scrolling on a phone. That's just insane to me. But the truth is, I'm not much better myself. I catch myself doing it all the time. And, and I think we, what we feed our mind creates... Uh, overflows into the rest of us. And, and so if we feed it negativity, negativity is going to flow into the rest of us. If we're uh, just feeding on outrage, which is so popular, that's going to flow into the rest of us. Philippians 4, verses 7 and 8 says this, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is hard work, right? It's, it's, it's a struggle. We, we are not victims to our thoughts. We take our thoughts captive. But the truth is most of us hardly take any time to actually think about what we're thinking about. I mean, when was the last time you thought, man, what did I think about all day? What did, my, what did I spend my time thinking about? Uh, Daniel prayed multiple times a day. That's why he was thrown into the lion's den, right? And maybe that's a good place for us to start. Maybe we need to spend a little time in prayer every day. Maybe we need to spend a little time in this book every day to, to get our minds in a place where we can fight a good fight. Number four, you have a purpose God is still in control. Daniel had a pretty rough time here at the beginning. I mean, his nation is conquered. He's ripped away from his family and friends. He's brought into this strange kingdom where they're asking him to do things he doesn't want to do. I mean, really, he, this is a point where a lot of us would give up. A lot of people would just throw their hands up in the air and say, that's enough. I can't, I don't want to do it anymore. But here's Daniel, and he realizes something. He realizes that God has a purpose for him in this, and that God is still in control. Romans 8, 28 says that we know in, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. See, God is using this moment. God is using the hard things in my life for something good. God has a purpose for you. Don't lose sight of that. That's how we continue to have endurance in this fight for our mind. Number five, be committed regardless of feeling and circumstance. I think verse eight said it, says it perfectly, that Daniel resolved. Daniel made a commitment. I think I mean, this is what we do in marriage, right? We, we go in front of someone, we profess our love for them, but in marriage, we make a commitment and we say, it doesn't matter how I feel you know, tomorrow. It doesn't matter that my emotions are gonna go up and down. Not every day is gonna be the best day, but I'm committing to you to love you regardless of my feelings, regardless of the circumstances of our life, in sickness and in health. And that's what Daniel is doing here. He makes this commitment to love God with his mind ahead of time. C.S. Lewis says that faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. I want to ask this question. Do we fight to love God with our minds? Do we, do we battle to know him more? On the cross, Jesus loved us 
with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. He wants to know us. He died to know us. And really, to, to love God with our minds is to know his love for us. It's a transforming love. It's deeper than just a cognitive awareness of something. It's, it's personal. It's intimate. And when we fight to know God more, what we're doing is we're throwing logs on the fire of our love for him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you first loved us, that you showed us what love was, that you loved us with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to love you with our mind, that we would fight in this, in this battlefield that our mind is. Lord, we, we ask that you would give us favor, that you would um, help us to, to fan the flame of our love for you Lord, that we would spend time with you, that we would honor you, that we would use our minds to know you. It's in your name we pray, amen.